Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. As the effects of climate change are increasingly being felt around the world, the need to transition away from fossil fuels is becoming more urgent. Power grids need to change. More wind turbines and solar panels need to be installed. Transport needs to change too. Electric cars are on the rise already around the world, and countries including Britain, France and Norway are planning to ban the sale of new internal combustion cars within the coming years. This new clean energy world will also need a new way to manage and store the intermittent electricity that's generated by renewable sources. That means new batteries, a lot of new batteries. And that in turn means mining and processing the metals needed for those batteries on an unprecedented scale. Mining though can often have devastating consequences for ecosystems, destroying and polluting vast landscapes. But what if there was a better way to get all those battery metals? Deep in the Pacific Ocean, some four kilometers below the surface and far away from any human interference, there could be a solution. Small, potato-sized rocks that contain many of the metals the world desperately needs for its energy transition. Could harvesting these so-called nodules help in the fight against climate change? Or should people be steering clear of disrupting yet another of the world's pristine environments? This is Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha. Today, should we mine the deep sea? Guiding me through today's show is The Economist's Hal Hodson. Hal, you've been reporting on the various companies that want to mine metals from the deep sea. But before we get on to the details of that, can you take me through why there's such an increased demand for the ingredients of batteries right now? It is imperative that instead of burning fuels like petrol or kerosene, you need to run electricity through a motor and you need to have a battery on board that can store some of that energy and turn it into electricity on demand. And within those batteries are metals. And if you don't have the metals, you cannot build the batteries. Now, you've been looking into the deep sea uh, as a source of these metals. What's particularly interesting there? Because obviously mines generally tend to be on land somewhere. So what, what is it about the deep sea that's interesting? So there's a very specific bit of the deep sea called the Clarion-Clipperton zone, which we call the CCZ for short. It's a stretch of seabed about four to 5,000 metres below the surface of the Pacific Ocean, and it's about the size of India. And within it is a simply massive amount of metals that are needed to produce the batteries that are required to decarbonise. The metals exist in the form of these nodules. They're sort of the size of a fist or a bit smaller, and they are 
essentially multi-million year accretions of tiny, tiny particles of these metals that have drifted down through the column of water and agglomerated together into clumps. They are a little bit like coal. Just as coal is to fossil fuels, these nodules are basically fossil metals. And it turns out that you can collect them and process them into the kinds of metals that are desperately needed to make batteries. And then when I started to think about this recently in light of an impending international deadline for setting regulations from the International Seabed Authority, the big question is how environmentally damaging would it be to get this metal from the seafloor? And crucially, a question I had not seen asked anywhere else, far less answered, is would it be more or less damaging than getting this metal on land? All right, well, let's talk about how it's done now, though. So nickel, for example, which is a crucial metal for the green transition. Where is it extracted from the earth right now? The number one place in the world that produces nickel is Indonesia. In the last two years, close to 100% of all growth in nickel production has been in Indonesia. It now produces more than 50% of all the nickel on the planet, and the Philippines is a distant second. In 2022, Indonesia produced about 1.6 million tonnes out of a total of somewhere in the region of 3 million tonnes, and that number has gone up. And I spoke to Sulin Wong, our Southeast Asia correspondent, all about how mining in Indonesia works and the environmental damage that comes with it. So a lot of nickel in the world right now is being mined from Indonesia and in particular Indonesian islands, which are rainforest environments, one of the world's biodiversity hotspots. As of 2022, the Indonesian government has granted over 1 million hectares of mining concessions according to the Indonesian Forum for the Environment, which is a charity. And almost three quarters of those hectares are in the country's dwindling forested areas. So how does the mining itself actually work? Mining companies have to clear huge areas of forests and a lot of the ore is spread out along very big areas compared to, say, copper or other minerals. So there are two types of nickel ores, saprolite and limonite, and each require different types of extraction, although both require a lot of deforestation. And the nickel from saprolite ores is extracted by melting the ore at a very, very high temperature, you know, more than 1,500 degrees Celsius. The method is very, very energy intensive and these companies have to build coal fire plants to provide electricity for the smeltering. And what about that other kind of laterite ore that you mentioned, the limonite? So the limonite ore sits above the saprolite ore and it used to be that there was no way to process the limonite and mining companies would just throw it out sometimes to get to the saprolite. Now that has changed because there's now a process called high pressure acid leaching or HPAL, which basically strips out the nickel in a pressure cooker like machine. Okay. And so compared with, you know, the sort of the old fashioned way of doing it, what's the environmental footprint look like for HPAL? So the HPAL process emits fewer greenhouse gases on average, but one of the drawbacks is that it produces a toxic slurry that is hard to safely dispose of. And there are three disposal methods. One is to pump these 
tailings, as they're called, into the sea. Now, this is banned by the Indonesian government. So the other two options are to store these tailings in dams or dry the waste and then stack it. So the problem with storing it in dams is that, you know, these dams are vulnerable to disasters such as earthquakes, landslides and heavy rain, which are all pretty common in Indonesia, which is, you know, a tropical country. At the moment, the HPL plants in Indonesia are using the third method that I mentioned, which is, you know, they're drying the waste and stacking it. Now, the problem with this is that it requires a lot of land. And so these plants are eventually going to run out of room. And experts I've spoken to in the industry say that what is going to happen is that we're probably going to see more and more tailings dams, which, you know, are pretty risky. Okay, and so, you know, dry stacking is going to be better, a better thing to do with the tailings. But I've seen the reports. These mining companies are not doing things transparently, are they? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, a very, very tiny number of Indonesian smelters at the moment are producing public reports. And so it's very, very hard to know exactly what is happening. And there have been a lot of reports of local communities saying that their drinking water has been contaminated. The waterways they relied on to fish in have been contaminated. Tourism has been negatively impacted. And there's also concerns that very toxic waste might be released. Now, we don't have any evidence of this yet, but mining experts I spoke to in reporting this out said they're really worried that eventually a mistake might be made and chromium-6, which is that toxic chemical that causes cancer, about half of Indonesia's mines produce this chemical. You know, there's a risk that that might leak into waterways and be very, very harmful for local communities, especially given that these communities are rapidly growing as migrant workers flow into these areas as the mining industry booms. Sulin, thanks very much for explaining all of that to me. Thanks for having me, Hal. Okay, Hal, that was a fascinating case study from Indonesia. And of course, the Indonesian island of Sulawesi, where a lot of these ores are mined, is one of those areas that's always mentioned as being particularly at risk for all the reasons uh, Sulin outlined just now. But let's go back to the deep sea. What do we know about the ecology of places like the clarion Clipperton zone? So we know a few things. The first thing we know is that there are no flora there. There are no plants. Plants cannot survive in the cold and the high pressure and the zero light, most importantly, environment of the Clarion-Clipperton zone because it is at 4,000 plus meters beneath the surface of the ocean. The second thing we know is that it is an area with extremely high biodiversity relative to other seabeds around the world. At the latest count, there's about 8,000 species that live across the Clarion-Clipperton zone. And this is quite a lot. But that goes hand in hand at the same time as having high biodiversity. The, the ecosystems of the CCZ are also extremely low abundance. And the sort of average number of visible creatures is about one and a half per meter squared across the various areas that have been surveyed so far. So as you move through the CCZ, you will see very, very little life. But what you will see will be very different from the thing you saw last time. And I went over to Adrian Glover's lab at the Natural History Museum in London to take a look at some of those creatures. So obviously what we do mostly here is work on the very small animals that uh, 
thousands and thousands of tiny little tubes like this. But they get quite big. I mean, there's a big, yeah. there's a big sea cucumber there, an yeah. Iwafanta. So that's your kind of um, classic deep sea cucumber. Yeah. And they are actually, this, I know it's amazing, a white colour. They actually are like that in real life as well. Huh. Um, with these spikes. And they just crawl around the seabed incredibly slowly. I mean, I've got a video, we spent actually 30 or 40 minutes just filming individual specimens. And you could see them just gradually moving. It's like ridiculously slow motion. When we talk about the deep sea, what are we talking about? What is the deep sea? So, well, technically, anywhere deeper than 500 meters would be a sort of... I mean, no one exact, there's no exact cutoff. Where sunlight doesn't penetrate anymore and, and all of the food effectively comes from the sunlit surface waters above is a reasonable definition of the deep sea. I mean, actually, the abyssal plains, so that's areas, you know, deeper than sort of 3,500 meters, sort of flat, kind of defined geophysically, effectively... It's 54% of our planet's solid surface. So the abyssal plains are this vast region of an environment that's completely without sunlight, extremely cold, dark, very low in food availability almost everywhere, well oxygenated. Interestingly enough, people often think that the deep sea would be no oxygen, but it's well oxygenated by the global sort of circulation of the oceans. Mm. So the limiting factor on life being there is, is just food. It's carbon. Just, just carbon coming from the sunlit surface waters above. And it's on that seabed that is the Clarion-Clipperton zone, right? That, it, in a way, it is the most abyssal, abyssal plain. It is the stillest. It is the quietest. That's right. I mean, the Clarion-Clipperton zone is a sort of happy medium. You have a little bit of sedimentation, but not so much that the nodules get buried. And you have this mixed habitat of essentially mud, you know, these little potato-sized nodules just sitting on the surface of the mud. It's quite a, a weird place. You know, it's odd in many ways. And, you know, when the scientists from the Challenger expedition, they went through the western end of the clarion Clipperton zone in 1874. The area was marked by the fact there was almost, you know, no significant animal life. And that's how it was really until sort of the late 70s when there was a scientist, Bob Heslow, and he decided to go out to the north sort of East Pacific and start collecting careful cubes of mud and look at the animals that you retain on that. And remarkably... Although the numbers were very low, he realised quite quickly that there were almost always there'd be species that were different from one another. So mm. therefore, scale it up you know, from a few centimetres mm. to thousands, six million square kilometres, mm. and suddenly you've got really quite a high-diversity environment, mm. even though the, the individual abundance at a single point is very low. Yeah, I mean, I come in here and I see the, these creatures, and they are amazing, I do get it. I, I absolutely wouldn't want, you know, just for the pure amazingness of them, I want them to remain... Yeah, the diversity is not the tropical rainforest or coral reef levels. You can't you can't pretend that. But uh, conservation, I mean, I would say it's not sort of just a, a numbers game of conserving purely based on species richness. There's lots of reasons that you do conservation, and so we've been surveying the marine invertebrates that we collect and the sediments actually for microbes and looking for antibiotic properties and looking for potential novel chemistry which could have anti-cancer properties and things. It's unlikely that initially any of these things are going to go to a sort of clinical use, but at least showcases using genuine information and genuine data the sort of the power and importance of biodiversity. Okay, Hal, so now we know a bit more about the ecology of the CCZ, the Clarion-Clipperton zone. Has anyone actually started mining down there? What are the sort of the, the commercial plans that you know about? 
So nobody has started mining commercially in the sense of getting these nodules and processing them into metals and selling those metals on the market. What has started is what's called exploration, and there are 17 different contracts allowing various companies sponsored by countries that have the right to apply for such a thing to allow them to assess the resource that's down there and to kind of figure out their economic model for producing metal out of the CCZ. But the general idea would be to send a robot down to the seabed and to hoover up the nodules that are sitting on the ocean floor. Because of the strange geochemistry of those nodules, they're not fixed on the floor. You don't have to dig anything. You just need to scoop them up. Those nodules are then pumped up a riser or a big long pipe, basically, to a ship on the surface where they are cleaned and then put onto another ship and sent to the shore for processing. So which companies are actually getting involved in this? The company that is the furthest ahead with this plan, it's a public company. Its its shares are traded on public markets. It's called the Metals Company. And they are the most advanced with their ambitions to gather nodules from an area of the Clarion-Clipperton zone called Nori D. I spoke to Jared Barron, the boss of the Metals Company, about his plans for collecting metals from the Clarion-Clipperton zone. For the last dozen years, we've been exploring the CCZ, and most of our effort has been on the Nori Area D, and we've been quantifying it, and and it's very fortunate there because, of course, it's a two-dimensional resource. It lies on the seafloor, so we don't have to drill holes or dig. Instead, we have to survey it. We take pictures of it, and then we take samples at regular intervals. So... When you look at the sort of the nickel market and you look at the expansion of supply that is required in order to meet various net zero targets by electrifying things, how do you see your nickel production interacting with land nickel production in the sense of is a kilo of nickel from the CCZ going to replace directly a kilo of nickel from Sulawesi or is it going to be more complicated than that? Well, I think it's going to be um, absolutely replacement if we are successful at using existing processing plants because those existing processing facilities have been built to process nickel laterite. So for every ton of nodules that we're sending there, it means that there's not a ton of nickel laterite being sent there. And that's a direct replacement. And we've got some really big ideas on how we can help speed up the preservation of those nickel laterite zones instead of letting these areas be developed into new nickel mines in some of these rainforest areas we could collaborate with local authorities and communities and instead show how we could turn them into areas that could be farmed for biodiversity credits and carbon credits thereby leaving those ecosystems in place and instead supply nodules into those onshore processing plants. This is to supply nodules into processing plants in Indonesia itself? Yes, or Japan. It's more interesting in Indonesia because of the scale of it. But in Japan, they're digging up rainforest nickel in other parts of the world, New Caledonia and the Philippines, and shipping that into Japan. We should talk a little bit about the seabed authority processes. You are able to put in an application, though you don't plan to. Talk me through the timeline. 
So July 9 is the two-year anniversary of when our sponsor country, Nauru, lodged the two-year notice. And so legally that means we would be able to lodge an application. We'll be ready to lodge our application in the second half of this year. What we'll be watching very closely is the progress that's been made down at the ISA. We're very encouraged by everything we're seeing. Even those nations that have been suggesting we're moving too fast are back at the table negotiating in good faith to see the conclusion of all of these legal regimes. So I don't think we'll see much in July. I think what we'll see is progress. We'll be back with Hal in just a moment. If you want to hear more about the challenges of electrifying the transport sector, I'd recommend you listen to our sister podcast, Money Talks. Last week, my colleague Tom Lee Devlin looked into aviation and even took a ride in an electric plane that had a few problems along the way. Don't miss out on all the drama of that reporting trip. Coming up, we'll explore what damage deep sea mining could do to the ecosystem of the ocean floor. And we'll consider how to address some of the uncertainties and trade-offs that society needs to grapple with. very reasonably do not want the ecosystems that they study, that they think about, that they care about to be destroyed. No humans have ever really touched these ecosystems. They are pristine rather in the same way that the Arctic or the Antarctic or the Alaskan tundra is pristine. And so I think one part of it is just why would we go and touch this thing that we've never touched before? Wouldn't we just be compounding the destruction of various natural resources that humans have already enacted on planet Earth? To think about this side of the discussion, I spoke to Lisa Levin. She's an oceanographer at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California in San Diego. Mining removes nodules, polymetallic nodules. We call that a hard substrate. And that is where about 50% of the species live. The remainder live in the sediments. But mining destroys the seafloor, and so it causes destruction of the animals in the mining footprint. It changes the chemistry at the seafloor. It changes how water moves over the seafloor. Mining creates plumes of sediment that contain toxic chemicals and relatively recently discovered radioactivity that move up into the water column and both the particles in the plume themselves 
can be damaging. They can smother animals or interfere with feeding or vision. Mining also creates light where there normally is none, or at least none besides bioluminescence. It creates sound and vibrations, all of which can deter animals both in the water and on the bottom. Those animals in the water rely on bioluminescence and vibration detection to find and avoid their prey. So we believe it's damaging. And it also can interfere with many of that big animals that are migrating across the region, whales, turtles, sharks, things like that. And what impact do you expect this to have on the ecosystems of the CCZ itself? Do you expect them to be completely wiped out? It really depends on the extent of mining, of course. We're still learning about the distribution of species, but it is emerging that some are fairly localized. In other words, they wouldn't live across the entire Clarion-Clipperton zone. And so some extinctions are expected. The ocean is much more three-dimensional and highly connected. And so things we do on the bottom of the ocean affect the water column, but they also affect the other side of the ocean basins. All of the organisms there play a very fundamental role in the carbon cycle, both the fish, but also the migrating plankton and the phytoplankton at the surface, right? So they are all part of this biological carbon pump, which removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, fixes it in the form of phytoplankton, and then it moves through the food web and there are vertically migrating animals. And I think there are a lot of concerns about what mining operations will do to the upper water column and the potential roles in carbon transfer and transport and sequestration. And I don't know if anybody's studied that at all. So we are not very good yet at understanding how an impact in one region will affect the people or marine life in another region. So here's where I sort of will challenge some of what you're saying a little bit, which is that we have a choice about where to get this nickel. Why would we get it from the forest with more biodiversity, more abundance? Also, we know that the forest fixes far more carbon than the deep sea does, and that is a real risk. So why on earth would we go and just continue to get nickel from a place where we know that the destruction is on a scale so much higher? Okay, well, I guess I would have to back up and ask you, first of all, how sure can you be that mining would stop in Sulawesi should deep sea mining begin? You realize it's not a one for one. And Sulawesi is not the only place to get nickel. And there are some great new papers out about nickel resources. We have more than 100 years worth of nickel on land from many different countries. So Tropical forests, and I assume Sulawesi falls in that, have 36% of the nickel reserves and resources. And so there are other places, other ways to get nickel without destroying as much biodiversity as you're talking about and without destroying the pristine biodiversity in the deep sea. But because landmines are unlikely to stop producing, I don't think it is fair to draw an either-or comparison. Lisa, I really appreciate you coming on and really enjoyed talking to you. Great. Well, thank you. After speaking to Lisa, I also wanted to speak to Anna Metaxas. 
Anna is an oceanographer, but at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, Canada. And she told me about Canada's decision this week to sign up to a moratorium on exploring deep sea mining, along with other countries like Ireland. I think the main reason is because Canada is very much into evidence-based decision-making. And so I believe the government of Canada believes that there is not enough science to proceed with deep sea mining in a way that will ensure the preservation of the marine environment. Could you explain for us the, the impacts that mining in the Clarion-Clipperton zone, uh, collecting those nodules, will have? So this is a very interesting question because it's the million-dollar question. There are however many billions we're actually trying to make here. There's been a few studies that have tried to compare impacts between land mining and deep-sea mining and basically come up with an idea, well, maybe it's better to go to the deep sea, the impacts are lower, or maybe we should just stay on land. And so the studies have all very much focused on very specific, I would say, parameters, and they haven't really taken a holistic view on how we're going to measure impacts and then how we're going to compare them. And so a few years ago now, Verena Tanakloff and I put together a group of scientists that were both people that have been working on the deep sea and people that have been working on land mining, impacts of land mining for a very, very long time. They're not affiliated with companies, they're academic researchers. And the idea was to come up with a way to compare impacts. But the problem is that we actually cannot do it for two reasons. Firstly, because issues on land mining with data accessibility, etc. And secondly, because mining in the deep sea has not started. So the experiments that we hear about are experiments that have either been done on very small scales, and then you multiply, you know, you try to scale up, or there have been modeling studies that may or may not have assumptions that are valid, or they have not been long enough. And so nobody can say, this is what the impact is going to be. We can guess. We can put huge errors around it. But we don't know exactly what it's going to be. We're very far from that. Is there not kind of a paradox a little bit here? If the problem with doing this is that no mining has been happening at the scale required to study those impacts, and we cannot start until it is studied at that scale, then the logical conclusion is that mining can never start. We don't even know who lives there. Forget about commercial mining. Forget about impacts. We have no idea. You can't say if you have your entire yard and you're just looking at what's in a flower pot, you can't tell what's in your yard. All you can tell is what's in your flower pot. You have no idea. So we need baseline data. There has been a study that interviewed a lot of experts from different stakeholders, ISA, etc. And the idea was that we need about a decade of baseline data to get a relatively reasonable grasp of what lives there what their role is, how much do they change over time, and how much do they change over space? A decade. I want to ask you now about, I guess, the difficult bit, which is the alternatives and trade-offs. You, I take it, don't agree that deep-sea mining in the Clarion-Clipperton zone is, is a sort of least bad option. But presumably you agree that climate change requires electrification and electrification requires metals. And the amount of nickel needed by 2040 has gone up since 2021, projected. It's not gone down, as some people have suggested it would. It's gone up. And so my question to you is, 
how do we move forward? If the deep sea is off limits, what path would you choose? So as much as I love the deep sea, I'm a scientist, and what I do is I collect evidence and I assess evidence. If we cannot make those comparisons, we cannot make those decisions. Where to mine, how to mine. So there's different options out there. There's a possibility of continuing to mine in places like Indonesia with very poor environmental records the way they have been doing it. They could try doing it better. We don't have to trash the forest. We can trash part of the forest. We can try to remediate. We can try to restore. The other option, of course, that's been proposed is deep sea mining, recycling. All those things are clearly some combination of these aspects is going to be the path forward. And that's not for me or for you to decide, I don't think. My job is to tell you this is what the different options are, what the impacts of those options are. And society has to decide whether we want to go to a new pristine environment without regulations and go to town like we have done with Indonesia, or we want to pause. Think about how we're going to get those medals. Think about how we're going to regulate climate. Are we going to regulate climate by electric vehicles only? Are there other ways? And those are, I mean, there's a term of that in the literature, and it's called tragic trade-offs, right? You either lose biodiversity or you lose climate. But essentially, if you look at the peer-reviewed literature, you can get, as far as I can tell, pretty reliable numbers for both biomass and biodiversity in Sulawesi versus the CCZ. And on both counts, Sulawesi, which is the sort of center of all nickel production in the world, Indonesia is by far the biggest place in the world and Sulawesi is the biggest place in Indonesia, the, the numbers are completely stark. When you say things like there's not enough evidence, I look at that and I think, but that's evidence, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with just looking at biomass or just looking at biodiversity other than it's, in my opinion, a very narrow view of what an ecosystem is about. You also look at the environment, you look at pollution, you look at nutrient cycles. And it may come that if we have the right numbers, maybe the impacts on land may come out as being more than the impacts of the deep sea. But I'm not going to cherry pick. People are talking about habitat loss. And habitat loss is one of the major drivers of biodiversity loss and something that's supposed to be addressed over our other issue, right? That is the main tool that is used by the Global Biodiversity Framework to measure how much biodiversity we're going to gain. And what is being measured, used is amount of habitat. It's not number of species and it's not biomass. It's amount of habitat. If you scale the number of species in the CCZ down to the area of Sulawesi, there are many species in the CCZ. There are 8,000 known but not, not named yet, and I'm sure there's more. Yeah, that was just the recent research group. Yeah. yeah, but that's in an area the size of India, right? Sulawesi is 18 times smaller than that. And if you factor for the area, then the, there would be 440 species if you had an equivalent density of species in Sulawesi. Sulawesi has 7,500 species just of plants, birds, and mammals, let alone arthropods. Mm-hmm. So we're talking tens of times more species per unit area. And yes, obviously habitat matters, but surely that the amount of things that live in the habitat is utterly relevant. Like having to make these judgments at all, as you say, I hadn't heard the term tragic trade-off. I completely agree with it. But we seem to be in a position where, at the moment at least, we have to make those trade-offs. Well, I don't think we're ready. We're not 
well-informed. And this is why I think you're seeing those countries sort of backing off and going, okay, hold on a minute here. Do we have enough information to make these decisions? I think what has happened, to be honest with you, climate change, which is the result of, I think, society ignoring the science for a very long time, it has accelerated. Things are happening a lot faster. It's an emergency for it's sure. It's an emergency, right? But it's also an opportunity for us to sort of stop as a society and think, are we just going to solve this emergency by creating another one? Or can we do this right? Mm. And so, yes, let's have those conversations. Let's get the data. Let's sit down as a society and come up with a plan that makes sense for the planet. But we need the data to make that plan. Anna, thank you very much for joining us on Babbage. Thank you for having me. Okay, Hal, thank you for bringing us all those fascinating conversations. Let's just take a moment to look at other options, though, since these methods of nickel mining are so contentious. But is it possible that, you know, innovation in the future could mean that we don't need so many of these uh, metals in the first place? That is absolutely possible. In fact, it is deeply desirable and everybody should be hoping for it. There are alternative chemistries for electric vehicle batteries which don't need any nickel or cobalt at all. And some of those have been being adopted quite steadily recently. But the difficulty is that if you bet entirely on those alternative chemistries supplying the need for fossil fuel-free transportation you would be taking quite a big bet. And the thing that you'd be risking, the the bad outcome that you would be risking if you made that bet, is that the planet continues to warm because transport emissions continue to be created by the burning of fossil fuels in vehicles. And a planet that continues to warm is far more disastrous and dangerous for humans and ecosystems than any of the mining we're talking about here. Okay, so the clear sense that I'm getting from you is that the decarbonisation issue around the world is so urgent that you think we probably should start mining in the uh, Clarion-Clipperton zone? That's my view. I don't think that the science is conclusive yet, but I do think that if you look at widely accepted ecological measures, such as biodiversity, such as abundance, even just the straight-up number of species in an area, you find that mining on land is destructive by several factors of 10 more than mining in the CCZ. Yes, in the CCZ, you have to cover a lot larger area because the nodules are just spread on the surface. But the abundance of life is so low and the number of species, even though it's high, is spread out across such a huge area that the destruction relative to getting that nickel on land is clearly significantly higher on the metrics that I looked at. There are other metrics and the full holistic picture of how an ecosystem works and what it is and what it's valued for, that's ultimately not even really a scientific discussion. It's kind of a political and social discussion. But to my mind, that the requirement for nickel and the dangers if the world doesn't get enough of it are so serious that it is worth exploring an option which on present data appears to be less damaging. Okay, but what about land-based mining? We talked about Indonesia as an example earlier. I mean, even if uh, people started mining in the deep sea, surely land-based mining wouldn't just stop. 
absolutely, Indonesia will not just stop. If Jared Barron puts a robot on the bottom of the ocean tomorrow, those Indonesian mines are contracted out for five years. Tesla has a five-year, $5 billion contract with an Indonesian nickel producer. So a lot of this environmental damage in Indonesia, in Sulawesi, is already kind of priced in, so to speak. It's sort of unavoidable now. But the thing you would be looking for is that increased production of nickel and other metals from the CCZ would be putting pressure on land-based mines in Indonesia in future, making the economic decision about whether to open those mines harder because there would be more supply and, crucially, it would be from a place with lower greenhouse gas emissions. And when the EU and America are talking about passporting batteries and making sure that batteries have the lowest emissions they can possibly have, To my mind, ignoring a source of metal that has low emissions and lower relative environmental footprint is not sensible. What is absolutely not in doubt is that the level of environmental surveying that the deep sea mining companies have done so far is just dramatically higher and more extensive than anything that happens on land. And what the people who don't want deep sea mining to happen would say is it's still not good enough. And I guess my view is that that's a case of the perfect being the enemy of the good. Now, you've said that the science isn't conclusive yet. Um, What kind of evidence would perhaps change your view of this trade-off? There's a few things that could shift my view. One is evidence that the sediment plumes from deep sea mining travel further and do more damage than the experiments that have been done to date on real plumes in the real CCZ have shown that they do. It is plausible, though on existing evidence unlikely, that those plumes could travel to fisheries or could disrupt food chains very, very far away. But we're talking about four kilometers beneath the ocean. And the thing that the scariest projections don't take account of is how absolutely enormous the ocean is. And when the experiments show facts like the fact that 98% of all plume material never rises more than two meters above the surface, the mine surface of the Clarion-Clipperton zone, to my mind, that is a, a risk that it is reasonable to take in the face of the emergency of decarbonization at, at an affordable cost. To be clear, this is not about saving money for anyone. This is a, it, The cheaper it is, the faster it can happen and the less damage happens. That's why cost matters. Okay, Hal, just to finish then, let's return to the reason why we're talking about all of this in the first place. The International Seabed Authority is thinking about regulations for deep sea mining. What's going to happen next? So right now, the Council of the International Seabed Authority is sitting in Kingston, Jamaica, discussing the mining code. And they're also discussing what would happen if a company, probably the metals company, put in an application for commercial mining before the mining regulations are published. The metals company says it doesn't want to do that. But it also basically says that it will do that if by sometime next year, those mining regulations have not been published. But as it stands, the work on regulations is continuing. People are hopeful that they might be ready by March next year. That's March 2024. And that thereafter, starting commercial mining would be a sort of easier thing all round for everybody because it would be happening in a regulated environment. But that remains to be seen. Hal, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Our thanks to Adrian Glover, Gerard Barron, Lisa Levin, Anna Metaxas 
and the economists Su Lin Wong and Hal Hodson. And thank you for listening to Babbage. A quick reminder that you can read all of Hal and Su Lin's reporting in The Economist. Babbage listeners can get their first month of a subscription for free at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage was produced this week by Jason Hoskin and Hannah Fisher, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.